I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker. And this whole episode could be a title for the Beelin Dick. Nice, Matt. Welcome. That's all I could come up with. That's all I could come up with. I love it. So uh, attentive listeners will notice that we have a guest today on the show, but the guest on the show today is also the regular co-host. So Matt Booker, welcome to episode 73. Thank you for joining Concavity Show as our special guest uh, today. You have recently come up with a book called The Beeline Deck, and we're here to talk about it. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to have you on, man. It is very weird. Um... (laughs) trying to do this or think about it in this way and it's very weird being on this side of it like I'm very I didn't think of this you know when I was writing this book and I don't want to ever seem like a self-promotional clown yeah I wanted to say up front that um, uh, this was entirely my idea and I pushed you really hard on it and you are a (laughs) humble guy and you were like nope nope and i was like let's get like another co-host we can like co-interview you you were like nope i was like okay i'm gonna let people know that this is entirely my push to have to have this episode not my idea to talk about your book matt um so i want people to know that (laughs) because i think it's fantastic and one of the best books that i have read in years and among some of my very favorite books ever so it deserves at least a, a little uh you know blip in our catalog for sure because it's very apropos of what we do (laughs) this book and my chances of becoming like a reclusive writer who doesn't give interviews that's pretty already much torpedoed Mm -hmm. by the fact i'm doing a foregone podcast interviews all the time anyway so can't start developing that personality yeah that's true it's it's too late for you buddy now but you did do a very cool thing with this book where you just you didn't tell anybody that you were writing it at least that i know i didn't know about it uh, our close friends that we were in constant contact with um, didn't know about it. One day you just texted our thread a picture of the cover and said, I'm sending you guys this. And we were all like, what? What is this? Tell us more. And you're like, oh, it's just a little, little project I've been working on. And then we all, you know, lost our minds and then received it and, and read it. And it's it's a very short little sort of pocket book. It's 119 pages. And the dimensions of it are quite small. So I read it like within a day of getting it in the mail. You can read it in one or two sittings pretty comfortably, I'd say. Um, And we were all just like, holy shit, Matt, this is phenomenal work. Like, I can't believe you didn't tell us about this. (laughs) Thanks, man. Well, you know, part of my original idea was to do like to wait another year or two and just put out like three or four books. Oh, wow. Just a massive drop. I had wanted to, like, I thought that would be cool just to be like, hey, I've never published a book before, but here's like three of them. (laughs) Um, And I still have, I still have plans of of doing more. I mean, uh, I'm I'm getting up there in age. And so I have been, you know, writing and working for a long time. And I have a lot of material that I've accumulated. And I used to put a lot more on my websites, plural, right. my blogs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like and Simple Ranger that, and stuff. All that stuff has just become infected with WordPress spam oh, yeah. and it gets no traffic at all because the way that Google 
controls their algorithm now and like I love books anyway so like why not just preserve it and you know let the sites kind of be their own thing and a book is a different format mm -hmm. so again I still I still have other things that I'm working on that I I hope to to come out with more in the future but yeah with this one I actually had a different form of the book a long time ago mm -hmm. um shit maybe like eight years ago I had put together something kind of similar to this but there was no like corporate angle to it okay, it was yeah. much it was much more just like homage to david marks and right. and the framing bit of it in the first draft was kind of like a ghost is haunting the basement of the strand bookstore in new york oh, cool. um, yeah. and it was david markson as kind of the ghost and it was like hamlet oh, and it was a kind yeah. of like but it was it was very self-referential and i actually got pretty far along and maybe even publishing that or publishing excerpts of it mm -hmm. and um and in the end i'm glad that it did not get published because i feel like it wasn't ready yeah and you know even if it took me eight more years of thinking about it and then coming back to it and working on it in the past couple of years um it was worth it to me to wait. So let this be a lesson to anyone who's out there working on something in total obscurity. Take your time. There's no, you know, no unless this is your job. Yeah. And, you know, this is one kind of point I make in the book, too, is like James Joyce struggled to make a living as a writer. There is a line. And yeah. So making money from the thing was obviously not a concern of mine. Yeah. It was more like I, w I just wanted it to be something I was proud of in the end. Yeah. And in the end, I am proud of it. Well, you should be. It's phenomenal. There's a line you have in the book about um, something to do with being a living, like working artist is incompatible with the goals of capitalism or the constraints of capitalism or something like that, which uh, sounds like, yep, yeah, trying to trying to be a writer and make money is very tough. Um, I suppose if you had published that book eight years ago, you would have beat Louise Erdrich to the punch having a book about, uh, you know, a ghost who haunts a bookstore, like in the sentence by her that I, she I put out last year. Book, but... Yeah, I haven't read it either, but Rachel has been raving about it to me, and I like Louise Erdrich, what I've read, little bits. Yeah, Brandon Hobson recommended a book of hers when he was on our show. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I I am very thankful for, you know, the, the people who have read it and reviewed it or you know said nice things about it so far yeah you're getting a ton of great press um, already well as you know like putting out a podcast anyone can review it yeah. right and i, I do know that put unfortunately out, <laughs> <laughs> i mean i put out podcasts for work too right yeah. it's like part of my day job yeah and with all of our shows like it doesn't matter what show it is every single show in the world has some negative reviews mm -hmm. and so I work in a format where people, random strangers on the internet can review it. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't put a lot of thought of that. And again, until the book came out and I was like, oh shit, people are going to be able to leave <laughs> reviews about this thing right. publicly. Right. And, yeah, um, Goodreads, Amazon. Oh, oh man, there's a lot of places. I was for like, that. Oh God, I had not really thought about that. Right. And like I say, I was just focused on the content of the book. Yeah. And, um, so when it came out, I was sort of cringing, just waiting for that first, oh, yeah. uh, first negative knock. review. And I, and I still kind of am, but so far everyone has been really generous and kind about it. Yeah. You've had some um, great ones like Edwin Turner of Biblioclept made a really, posted a really nice review of this book recently. Philip Friedenberg left a really nice review on Goodreads that I read today. 
Eric Eckel just posted something on his site. And you have two really nice five-star reviews on Amazon. Not even four stars, <laughs> um, five. Well, so well done. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing about that is, like, on Goodreads, too, there's some, like, in the past I've seen some books that I really admire get just absolutely savaged yeah. in Goodreads. And Goodreads in particular has some, you know, uh, people who go on there, I feel like, really mean-spiritedly. Sure. Yeah. Um, and that has made me realize like one every every book that i love some people hate it sure so yeah. that doesn't say anything about the book <laughs> it says something like if you see someone leave a really mean-spirited review mm -hmm. i don't think like wow this book must be trash i think this person must be trash who's writing the review kind of a <laughs> right yeah. and so yeah. I, I, and i honestly feel like that you know the book is written in such a way that it kind of anticipates a lot of its own criticisms where sure, yeah, the, the book is a stand-in or the deck is a stand-in for the book yeah, it's very self-aware so, like Beelan criticizing the deck is really a metaphor for like people criticizing the book right. and books that I admire the type of like, I don't know, fragmented short books that I admire, especially yeah. that other people just don't get. Right. Yeah. And like maybe like David Markson's style is not for everyone and that's fine, but it's, it's great for us and a lot right. of people, <laughs> you know, right. like some well, interesting thing too is like, there's been people at work who I only know from my corporate job yeah. who are like, Oh, guys, I put it on LinkedIn and I actually got like a ton of people. I never talked to oh, yeah, cool. anymore. Like respond on LinkedIn. Yeah. I got a really good response. And cool. I was like, Oh shit, these people, I don't know what they're expecting. Right. right? Yeah. Um, but my ideal reader I've realized is someone who maybe has a little bit of corporate experience right. with, yeah a little bit of, I don't know, literary philosophy, yeah. um, you know, who's heard of David Markson at least. Yeah. Um, so that, that would be nice to, I realize that intersection, I think people get something out of it, but it's been interesting to see which people, you know, resonates with what parts of it. Yeah. But I think going back to what you were saying earlier about um, the timing of this book, maybe you just needed like eight more years in the corporate world to like, you know, get some sure. more experience to like round out some of these ideas and be able to sort of interrogate them like the, in the yeah. way you do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's definitely a part of it. I think, um, I, I didn't want to have too much story in it, honestly. Yeah, like yeah. a lot of my favorite books and movies are like ones where nothing happens yeah. and it's really it's interior. Yeah. All right. It's conversations, characters. It's not like plot driven. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I did get more life experience in that time. And so I wanted to put some of that in there, mm -hmm. but like, have you read all the David Mark? I have, how much of David Markson have you read, Dave? Have you I read, have like, read, the, this is not a novel one? and Wittgenstein's okay. mistress. I have not okay. read, uh, any of the other, there's okay, two so others. Is that right? Three, two or three others that total. are like that. Yeah. So the, the first one of that, what's called like a note card tetralogy yes, is right. re reader's block, mm -hmm. uh, which was published by Dalkey shortly after Wittgenstein's mistress was published. Mm -hmm. And that book has a lot more of Markson in it. Mm. And it has like some biographically bits, sort of like, yeah, but it has like more of like a character. And yeah, like, okay. yeah. you know how like in Wittgenstein's mistress, you're all in this person's head and like, you know, you're following them around. Maybe they're going to the beach and, you know, what, what is it like living there? Mm -hmm. Do they hear sounds and what, 
there's some of that in reader's block where who is this author telling us these facts yeah. and you know, what is his life like? And then the next one comes out, which is the one you read. This is not a novel. And that one, he's basically saying like, I'm tired even coming up with characters and stories. <laughs> Here's and just how a bunch of famous people died more or right. less. <laughs> and, and I mean, there's some themes that yeah. you can try to follow through that, yeah. but he's like, I don't even, I've lost patience with even like making up a story. Yeah. And there's something about that that even appeals to me now where I'm yeah. like the story part of it. I'm like, fuck, do you really care? You know, like I could work all this time on telling some, you know, yeah. coming of age story or some yeah. office novel. And like for me, it's really hard to make that come alive. Yeah. And, you know, you're competing against people who have done all kinds of other brilliant stuff with that. Mm -hmm. So it's partly about like finding a way to just find your own voice in this, yeah. you know, it's kind of a crowded space yeah. and Markson did it. Like there's nothing like that before him. I mean, mm -hmm. there are some things kind of like it, which I can get into, but yeah. um, he, he made it such his own style that I loved it. Totally. Yeah. So this book, like if we were just sort of describe it, give people uh, like a quick uh, summary to very, like, I would say like an, yeah. a love letter to David Markson's like style, kind of like an homage to how he wrote that uh, series of books. So you've just basically got like a bunch of clauses that are separated by like a line break throughout, very similar to what you see in Markson's writing. And this is a book about a character waiting in San Francisco and SFO for a flight to Denver that just keeps getting delayed. And as you wait around for hours and hours, you're thinking about this PowerPoint deck that you're making for the CEO of this corporation you work for whose name is Belen and he's totally a douche into AI stuff and there's a lot of like thought musing about uh, AI and um, corporate life obviously the way that PowerPoint is a just really a shitty format to deliver information to people and it's non-memorable and it's transitory and all this kind of stuff but the deck is something that you're obsessively working on and thinking about throughout the book. Um, so plot wise, yeah, it's a guy taking an Uber to the airport, sitting around waiting for a plane. That's right. what happens in the book. Right. But it's the inner uh, discourse of all the stuff that this character, this narrator is thinking about as he sits around hanging out in the airport. And right. for me, like, because I know you pretty well, we've been friends for almost a decade. Like, I see your personality and fingerprints like all all over this book. And I'm sure people who listen to the show for a long time will also see like a lot of Matt Booker in this book. So to say that it's like an unnamed narrator to me is like, well, this is the mind of Matt Booker. But um, so I, I love that about the book, like mm -hmm. someone, but someone who ha has no idea who you are and just picks this up and reads it. Um, would have a very different experience than I do or someone who knows you reading this book, I think, which is really right. cool that it can go like it can scale for either direction in a way that I think would be totally unique and enjoyable for whoever reads it. Yeah. And just physically, one thing I've always liked about the David Markson books is like you pick one up and open it and it doesn't seem intimidating because yeah. it is all broken up totally. into these little fragments. And I wanted to replicate that in whatever way I did. And there are parts of the book. There's one part that's like a, a numbered list. Yeah. Um, there's right. you know more that are lengthy quotes and things. Mm -hmm. But I 
I feel like, you know, there's this tension in all of us between reading a print book these days and like scrolling on your phone. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of also wanted those paragraphs in the book to be about the length of a tweet. Yeah. yeah. And, and it would be, you know, even as an ebook, like something you could scroll and read almost like when you're scrolling Twitter, you've got all of these like kind of unconnected thoughts. And sometimes there's common themes that pop up. Um, but, it's also easy to keep scrolling and yeah. like with a reader, I think when you're writing something, it's hard to keep people turning the page. Mm -hmm. Like for me as a reader, it's always easy for me to put a book down, <laughs> but with the marks and yeah. books, I think I realized it was hard for me to put those books down They're because so, it's such an addictive it, style. It's just like, what's next? Yeah. what's next? Yeah. What's next? What's next? What's yeah. next? And your brain is sort of feeding on this, uh, you know, impulse to know what's next. Yeah. And that's one thing that I really wanted to replicate is just yeah. to keep people turning the page of like, and again, there's no suspense of like what's going to happen. Um, even though there's a it bit does of an of, arc, like it does end in a bit of suspense yeah, a little bit, sure, but yeah. it, it's not like, and it's not plot driven of like, why are you turning the page? Yeah. It's more of like, it's like curiosity. Can you turn, can you turn off? Right. Yeah. Your brain is just like <laughs> looking for a pattern almost. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, and this sounds really fucking pretentious for me to say this, right? But, like, I did put a little bit of thought into, like, how do I keep people just physically turning the pages? Yeah. And for me, this is an approach that I wanted to try. So Yeah, you kind of um, kind of capture this on page 99 well with a description that to me seems very meta about this book, which is what seems beautiful to me, what I should most like to do would be a book about nothing a book without any exterior ties, but sustained by the internal force of its style. A book which would have almost no subject, or at least in which the subject would be almost invisible, if that's possible. The most beautiful works are those with least matter, wrote Flaubert. So this book sort of does that, essentially. It's almost like a meta-commentary meta on itself a little bit. Well, and I think that I actually just stole that from David Marks. <laughs> and that I think he uses this... Uh, a shorter version of that Flaubert quote somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't even remember how I found that. Yeah. But And then right above know. that that <laughs> entry, you've got two, which are a deck with no plot and a deck about nothing, which I sort of is maybe like a Seinfeld right. nod a little Show bit, about I hope. Yeah. Um, I mean, this book is about something, but in some ways it's like a string of clues, a collection of interesting details, clues rather than trivia, as you say on page 49. Um, and then I think the like the cover page evokes this sort of rabbit hole sensibility. And David Jensen did a great job on this cover to sort of, you know, you're kind of like descending deeper and deeper down. It almost makes me think of like the Daniel Iski book a little bit, right? House of Leaves, like descending the, the infinite staircase down and like rabbit holes, Wikipedia specific rabbit holes are a big theme and recurring idea in this book. And uh, it's that relation to AI and computerization, whereas like, can computers be curious in the same way spontaneously that a human can instantly sort of just become curious about something and follow it for hours through like a series of Wikipedia links and related articles and all that stuff. Google Street View makes some appearances in this book, you know, so like there are so many things that are so Field Matt notes. Booker in this book. Field notes is a, is a big recurring one. Pencils, pencils as weapons. Yeah. Uh, which is to 
it's a play on a Ricky J book title of playing cards as well. Oh yeah. Cards as weapons. Nice. Um, and like, you know, the pen is mightier than the sword mm-hmm, and all mm-hmm. that. But like yeah, with the cover, yeah. I did struggle of like what to put on it. And it was on the text only for a long time. Mm. And, you know, I really liked old um, paperbacks that sort of had a, an older or kind of outdated look to them. Yeah, yeah. And there was one in particular that I love. And again, this sounds really like self-important, but I, so be it. Um, is I really liked the cover of these Andre Bazan books, mm-hmm. What is Cinema? And it was pink. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that's such a weird choice for like this academic oh, yeah. philosophical like a critical theorist about Bazan? film theorist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, cultural critic mm-hmm. or whatever. But uh, it was pink. And I was like, well, that'd be cool. Like he must have just <laughs> said, like, I want a pink book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the title too on the book is kind of a joke. I think I told you this where, you know, the guy in the book spends a lot of time trying to come up with titles. Yes. And in the end, like the title of the book is just the Baron deck, (laughs) Um, which is also, you know, it could be abbreviated like TBD to be determined. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, Oh, I never thought of that. That's great. uh, And, you know, I love coming up with like titles of things. And like in Bologna, he has you know, these fake writers like Archimboldi who creates right. the fake titles of books that Archimboldi had written. Yep. And, you know, in Infinite Jest, you have all these fake filmography, like J.O.I.'s filmography. Totally. Um, and then I also remember when we interviewed um, Jessica Anthony yep. and that she talked about as part of her like creative writing practice, she'll come up with lists of titles of books. That's right. I remember that. And that's yeah. how she actually came up with Enter the Aardvark as a title right. first um and then she wrote right, the story yeah. after and then that sparked the, the idea title. for the for the narrative yeah right yeah that was cool how many titles of um, the deck are in this book like here's one on page 29 one title survival mode in ai experience management there's probably i would guess like 20 to 30 different possible titles for the deck that your narrator names yeah, i don't did know you ever, you ever i don't count? know a lot <laughs> i don't know i didn't i didn't count them i mean i could probably come up with a hundred more yeah. um but part of that is based on reality and that in like corporate life you'll see these folders full of powerpoint decks and they all have like slightly different names and you know that's a big deal when you have a lot of files is like what is the file naming conventions yeah and so a lot of corporate jobs will tell you like you must name the file this way put the date the title you know the version number um and it's really hard to also name like new corporate products like there's whole teams of people that are naming experts and so this is a very i think philosophical problem where you know even going back to like the bible like this is what the task that like God gives to man first, <laughs> sure, which is yeah, to name, to name all the animals yeah. and plants and things. Yeah. Um, and it's just a very, I don't know, symbolic thing of like, what, what, what are you even doing in life besides naming, naming things? And, yeah. And just pointing into it and be like, is this a, you know, the deck, like, had you heard that term for a PowerPoint deck? Like some places don't use that. Uh, only kind of do. recently, like in the last year or something, I think it's through like television. And I remember saying, using that term 
regarding like a Google slideshow that I showed my class in English nine recently. This was a few months ago and Rachel goes, Ugh, don't call it a deck. That's so douchey. And you've got, you've got a line on page 61 of this hate calling it a deck, but also hate PowerPoint and presentation. (laughs) (laughs) So you like captured that feeling really well for me, (laughs) but yeah, I know. Uh, Um, and yeah, and in reality, I'm really terrible at PowerPoint. Like, there's some people who, when they get into corporate life, like yeah. they really excel at making corporate yeah. PowerPoint uh-huh. decks, and I'm I'm pretty terrible at it. So I end up just like copying theirs and renaming them, and be like find and replace, and be like that oh, was a great deck. And it's like thanks to the miracles of like find and replace uh-huh. and save save as. Like I don't have to worry about designing it so much as writing it. Right. Um, and I, I just, in general, I have found that it is a unique skill, like being able to visually represent ideas. Mm-hmm. And mine is just not that. It's all text-based. So, like, in the book itself, I had thought at some point of, like, even showing some slides from the deck. Yeah. And I was like, no, I don't want that. I want mm-hmm. it to all be text yeah. only. I mean, a curious question that emerges emerges for me as I read this book is, is this book itself the deck? Because there's parts where you say that like the deck is now approaching like 250 slides, <laughs> and I'm imagining you like presenting this at a corporate meeting with like Dave, the like g- the surfer guru, the guru guy. He's like the only guy in the, in the room that you like. <laughs> Jimmy's clearly douche. Beelan's right. clearly douche. These are right. characters in the book, um, but like the book itself almost seems like it's becoming the deck, and the way you describe the goals of the deck are kind of what the book is also doing as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of all mixed up there where yeah. you're you're reading the book but you're reading like what's going to go into the deck or maybe what already has gone into the deck. Yeah. And I you know, I think for me I just found myself a lot with my life, my thoughts are mixed up with my work and like right. my my work is almost inextricable because it is not like mm-hmm. physical labor, it's mental labor. Yeah. It is like your thoughts become, you know, sort of owned by this corporation, right? Yeah. Like you <laughs> yeah, have like to colonized think about your it. mind in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So that, I mean, and that, you know, it's funny you mentioned that Dave, the guru yeah. guy is based on a real guy who I met one time. I believe that. Yeah. That's who was really named Dave yeah. and like, um, is also kind of pointing back to, there's a couple of mentions of Steve jobs in the book. Yeah. And, and dating, that, um, uh, Jennifer Egan. Jennifer Egan, yeah. I did not know and that actually so, before reading this. I looked yeah, it Jennifer up. Jennifer Egan also, you know, is famous for in a visit from the Goon Squad. There's a chapter that is a PowerPoint presentation. Right, there. yeah. Um forgot about that. So there there's that PowerPoint connection. Yeah. But in Silicon Valley too, like, you know, Jobs is regarded as almost like a god. Mm-hmm. And there used to be a time where there was maybe a little more liberal arts connection directly to like software and tech companies in general. Mm. And like people always say this about the Mac is that Steve jobs had like taken a calligraphy class at Reed college when he was there. And I'm like, that don't make him a fucking artist. Okay. He's still a capitalist just cause, right. just cause he took one yeah. calligraphy class and he put some kind of, you know, humanization into the interface mm. for, the first, you know, operating system on a Mac doesn't make him an, an artist. artist. You know that, right? <laughs> um, 
but there were some other people who wanted to replicate this. And I think some big tech companies were a little more tolerant of some liberal arts types joining, mm. you know, even in executive roles, um, partly because it seemed weird. Yeah. And like Jobs was a weird guy. Right. Like and that weirdness, you know, is represented in this surf guru type character in the book. Right. Um, and I was like, I want that job. Like, how do you get that job <laughs> where you can just sort of like walk around a conference room and just like put out some pithy, weird statement and people would be like, that's it. Yeah. I need to follow that guy. Right. Um, there's another crazy story where I don't know if you've ever heard this story of like back when like AOL bought Time Warner um, and like Yahoo was hiring all these weird people. Like for a while they hired this DJ guy, Shingy. Okay. <laughs> And it was like, well, we just think he's, you know, visionary artist. We're going to bring in Shingy. And uh, it's like, you know, your mom and dad telling you, like, it's okay to play hip hop in the car, Dave. And we're cool with it now. And you're like, what the fuck? Shingy? And have you seen a picture of this guy, Shingy? I don't think so. You got to Google it. Yeah, I'll him. do that right now. And he would just do stuff, you know, be like, I wrote a song about, you know, synergy and love. And I just want to, like, inspire you guys and, like... <sighs> What the hell is going on? Okay, he's very wild looking. Yeah, okay. Ugh. David Shane. So there's just something that appeals to me about like where corporate life like gets weird and strange. Yeah. And you know, and I think the narrator of my book is like clearly someone who doesn't fit in with just the normal like corporate Absolutely. Execs. Yeah. He you can you get the sense that he's there because he has to be for a paycheck. Um yeah. and there are some interesting like philosophical connections that he is working through particularly like AI is a big preoccupation of this book and he's interested, but he you can see the detachment throughout the narrator in this book is like, I know that this world is pretty messed up and I like don't necessarily want to be complicit with it, but maybe he thinks he can make some changes from the inside or something, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of where I was going with that. There, there are, was this company one time where you'd fly into SFO and you'd get on the 101 going north into San Francisco and those billboards were like I don't know pricey real estate valuable signage because everyone in like Silicon Valley right is getting off the plane and going on 101 north and there would be a company name like and it would just be such marketing bullshit <laughs> right. just say like the name of the company and then like AI and machine learning and it's like that's like putting a restaurant billboard up that just says like food and drink. Like, what? <laughs> it doesn't tell you anything about like it's what totally kind of food like, is awesome. it good? Like yeah. it's just so vague. It's like the words AI and machine learning are almost meaningless. Right. And like the way that people use them now, it's the way that people were using, I, I don't know, like crypto or cyber or, you know, digital transformation stuff. It's just meaningless jargon. Right. Yeah. Um, but I do think we're in a moment where there is a big conversation going on about AI yeah, and absolutely. chat GPT. Yes. And that's a big conversation sure in education that, that I'm having a lot with a lot yeah, of colleagues I mean, lately. How are they approaching that? Uh, you know, some people think that this is kind of a doomsday moment for education, you know, at like the secondary and post-secondary levels. Some, Why is that? Why do they think it's doomsday? Really? I mean, from like a plagiarism perspective, like it's presents some challenges. 
um, more optimistic folks are like, you know, this is a cool moment in academia because now like we have to assess like what is the value of like a liberal arts education when a machine can just do this, you know, like, I mean, is, <laughs> but are there people there who are saying, well, let's just find a different way to grade or, I mean, let's find a different thing to, to assess rather than, you know, writing that someone does off on their own time and comes back to you with like, are people trying to adapt to new? Yeah. Somewhat like, like some reality. teachers are now just like doing a lot more like in-class writing with like pencil and paper, no access to technology. So, you know, that's one sort of, loophole one way to get around it or you know if students have access to computers at some point in the writing process you need to see like evidence of them showing their work along the way so like getting them to write a paper outline for an essay that they hand in it's part of their grade for the assignment and then i can look at that paper outline compare it to their final product and be like yep they wrote the you know they probably wrote this essay based on what i've seen you know in class or whatever um have you tried out chat GPT? Have you tried to use it? I have. Yeah. I made a, a rubric with it the other day for a class presentation assignment that my students did. And it saved and me a lot think? of time. It was really good. <laughs> I, I mean, what, what did it do? Like, I don't understand the rubric. Like I asked it, I was like, um, make a, you know, a rubric with a five point grading scale for these three categories. Um, and here just like quick parameters of the assignment. And then it just generated this grid. That was like, yep, that's great. I tweaked a few and, things on it, but it was very similar to something that I would have made by hand, but it would have taken me like 20 to 30 minutes, you know? So you, you didn't have to really do, it really saved you time the way that like a lot of other tools save yeah, you time. Totally. Right? Yeah, totally. But it wasn't something where you felt like, oh, this is, I can't deal with this or anything. Like you, you felt like, like the way that your kids would feel. I don't know. I'm trying to ask like yeah. how you know, is it really what we're afraid of? Like, to me, that's not like the end all be all of a chat bot. Like people were afraid of other technology in the past. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I like the phrase in, in the book that you have, like, um, will, um, will legislators in our lifetime, like, will we live in our lifetime to see legislators, um, like, and AI technology basically. Um, I mean, they're just so slow to change, right? Yeah. Like they're so, uh, you know, behind the times, even yeah. when it came to like regulating the internet. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, that they have totally failed in regulating the internet. <laughs> sure, yeah. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things that should be uh, probably illegal or yeah. regulated and are not well managed now. Mm -hmm. So if the technology starts changing a whole hell of a lot faster, mm -hmm. how are they going to keep up with it? Yeah. And like, will we live to see the point where, you know, the stuff that we wish that they had regulated now yeah. actually do yeah. come out and say like, Oh, don't do that. Wasn't there a thing like really recently in the last week or two of like a bunch of AI folks who signed a petition and like one of the guys was the head of chat GPT and like sent it to American legislators. And they were like, please stop this. Like stop. Yeah. You need to be the ones to tell us to stop what we're doing because we foresee this getting off the rails. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got I, stuff I, in the, in the Beal and deck about like, you know, future AI enslavement of humans, and all that kind of stuff, Jetsons, robots. And there's a lot of fun play that you do with like the idea of uh, robot 
as replacing humans or enslaving humans down the line. Right. And I mean, people who are making really sophisticated technology who haven't really done any of the reading or research of, you know, going back to stuff that was done on AI in the seventies. I mean, the the idea of AI has been around a very long time. And, you know, the, the idea of androids and robots has been around for a very long time as well. And, thought out maybe some morals and ethics around it yeah you've got a so, great line on, on this on page 102 invest in artificial intelligence without regard for intelligent ethics so like has enough thinking been done on the on the front end or the back end of you know, what does this stuff really imply like where where could it really go well i, I was also talking to a friend of mine who is uh, maybe more on the science technology side of the corporate world mm-hmm. or the actual science and research side. And I have this line in there that's like science may accidentally reveal beauty, but software itself is almost entirely devoid of beauty. Right. And you know, but it could he, aim at elegance. Code, some code could aim at elegance. Right. Yeah. Right. But he, you know, and I think a lot of people would really take issue with that. Same with like right. math or writing in a way. And that like the way that I'm trying to define beauty or elegance there is something that is explicitly not created by humans Mm -hmm. and like you know we see this debate rise up with like genetic engineering in a lab and like you know will we be cloning babies in a test tube (laughs) and it's like once once mankind is able to sort of create things that they were previously not able to create Mm -hmm. and that could be you know a virtual reality world that is inseparable from our real world. Mm -hmm. It could be things like, you know, cloning babies. It could be things like creating robots that are inseparable from humans. Like this is all the subject of a lot of other more intelligent art and literature than me. (laughs) But, but my point is like, it's not in the code itself is like, to me, that's not what I'm defining as like beauty, much less the sublime. Yeah. And, you know, the same with with mathematics and even writing to a degree, like just words on a page from a distance, like holding up a chart of words to me, even if it's beautiful words and you make sense of it. Mm-hmm. It's not the same as, you know, a redwood tree, a, the sunset, sunset that I put yeah. in there. Um, it's interesting that, that it we is... talked about sublimity with um, our previous guest, Sheila Liming, a lot in, yeah. in relation to yeah. her book. I had already out. written this book. And I know, and I, I know yeah. So then I was reading this. I was like, wait a second. This is like a lot like the conversation that we just had with Sheila. That was a really cool overlap for me. Yeah. And like, I think that's one reason why her book resonated so much with me mm-hmm. is that it was very human centered, yeah. right? It's very much around the idea of putting and keeping people at the middle of it. So like that person who is assessing students in a room with a sheet of paper and a pencil, Mm -hmm. that's a pure form of like human relationships to me. Like there's not this mediated thing of a a computer that can, you can go tell it to write you an essay like that. Mm -hmm. That to me is not an abomination per se, but uh, <laughs> it's approaching something like a moral yeah, hazard totally. or yeah. uh, almost something like truly dangerous, yeah. which, you know, have you read much about like the idea of the singularity yeah. and like where Kurt computers become like self-aware for the first time, like truly self-aware is that more or less the idea? Right. 
Right. And they basically don't need humans anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, right now, like we can like, you know, your computer starts doing some crazy. You can unplug it. Right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you can turn it off. Right. And but now, like, you can't turn off all the Internet. Right. You can't turn off all the computers in the world. And so already we've lost some control. Um and like things with like smart homes and smart right. devices and yeah. like they've got AI in a freaking Tesla now that can say, oh, uh, turn left here regardless of what's in the way or, you know, make mm-hmm. choices beyond you. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I have this line in there, too, about like a computer can't be held responsible for its decisions, so it shouldn't make management corporate decisions. decisions are made. Yeah, that's right. right. That's a great one. And there are people in the corporate world who are like, great, we can just blame the algorithm. We don't have to take responsibility <laughs> ourselves. Yeah. You know, and like that's a very key ethic of going back to the 1970s yeah. for IBM developed this this set of like ethics around computing. And one of them was like, you cannot blame a decision mm. on a computer. Mm. Like if you're doing that, then you're putting the wrong decisions in the computer's hands. Right. So. Yeah. I'm not a computer person. Obviously, I'm a book and pencil and paper person, Dave. But like, you clearly, we're all like, forced to grapple a this fair, shit. A fair bit about computers, as evidenced well, by forced this, this to. novel. Yeah, <laughs> forced to. <laughs> but you have this like hopeful line about all this on 39, where you say AI can't kill anything worth preserving. I like that. That's that's hopeful to me. Yeah, I believe that that it could accidentally work out for the best where, uh, you know, it, it sort of clears away a lot of stuff that people have forgotten about or stuff people don't need. And we get back to what we've forgotten about in a way. Um, and I do believe that, you know, that things are cyclical and we do repeat our, our own history, whether we like it or not. Um, so I, I am hopeful for the future. I have to be that way because like you, I have kids, um it's not maybe as hopeful with the climate crisis but yeah yeah that is one combine it cloud with the, for sure combine it with the ai bit um you know I, i'm hopeful that some smart and ethical people will not like try to jeopardize the fate of humanity <laughs> yes um but you know we've seen like you know even with freaking twitter of turn it into a right-wing political organization and it's like well then yeah. I, people just don't want to have anything to do with it mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you can see i'm just going all over the place which is kind of what the book does that's what the book does that's what we always do on the show uh we like to think of the show as just like hanging out at a pub having a conversation we don't have like a clear outline of what we want to accomplish and that's okay and that <laughs> um, definitely do not have an outline. I did write down some notes for this, but you know, one thing too, I oh, yeah, we got to, notes to talk about. I got talking points in my deck. I got bullet points. <laughs> Go. <laughs> uh, um, is uh, for anyone who is listening out there, like I do pronounce it Belen. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I wasn't sure it was Belen or Belen. Yeah. Belen. And you know, the part of the reason why I wanted to name it, that is, um, that's you know i say in the book it's a family name all that stuff is true i was gonna ask you about this um, yeah but i am not really a belin myself and so i have this sort of complicated history where um there is this you know one of my great grandfathers who i call him my great grandfather mm-hmm. leo stephen belin who i think is the most interesting character in our whole family, family lineage yeah 
Yeah, and he was born in Berlin, Germany, came over to the U.S. through Ellis Island, mm -hmm. got separated from his parents, somehow found them later in Chicago, mm -hmm. rolled, rode the rails around America, got sick fell and off fell the off the train. train in <laughs> yeah. Powersville, Missouri, yeah. and was basically just like, I'll just be adopted by this family. At 20, age 21. And at age 21, like, yeah. how's that even possible? Who does that? This was and... so funny. Last night I was watching The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I hadn't watched it in like 15 years. I'm just going to watch this movie. And they, after Ned Plimpton dies, they make a th him and uh, his wife are talking about, what, could we have adopted him? He's like, well, he's 30, but yeah, I just considered it. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's like in, in Matt's book, <laughs> getting adopted I mean, in your this, 20s. This is like, you know, 1911. Yeah. And the dude just doesn't ever... He's he stays in this little tiny town, but mm -hmm. his family is still in Chicago mm -hmm. and they do eventually find him. And, you know, there's telegraph and telephones and stuff later. And he's like, what the hell are you doing down there, man? We thought you disappeared. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I got a different name now. I just can't even imagine. Like, how do you tell your parents and be like, yeah, you're in your early 20s and you're just like. Oh, I got this new identity now. Yeah. And, you know, he's born in Germany, speaking German. He had to learn right. English yeah. at some point. And so he enlists in World War One in the in the army. And at some point he is like arrested for being a spy. They're like, throw you in jail. You're not a citizen. You can't join the U.S. Army mm -hmm. when you're a German citizen right. going to fight Germany. Yeah. And he agrees to enlist. And they his adopted father basically gets him out of jail mm. and this is in oh, wow. Southern Iowa yeah. and he gets over to, to France is a long story of like how he actually gets to France and he's with the 88th division American expeditionary forces. And this is just fascinating to me. Mm. Like I have his diaries. I have yeah. all the postcards that he sent back from world war one. Right. And so some of the diary entries that are in this novel are literally right. his real entries, I imagine. Right. Yeah. Cool. Right. Right. Just transcribed the day about the um, horses drowning. Oh my God. So crazy. And like you, you sort of compare it to like, what if like your computer, your hard drive, your phone, everything that contains like data related to your livelihood just got nuked in one day. Like that's kind of the same thing as what happened to, well, to him. Right. Yeah. And like that story, it was a big, big family story that had been passed down is that, you know, the, the team of horses got strangled in the water, caught up in their own uh, reins mm -hmm. and they couldn't get out and the people couldn't save them. And they basically dragged each other down and drowned in the, the lake. Um, and there's this kind of a sub theme of horses throughout the book. Yeah. I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah. And like horse stables, um, um, how to name and horse stables. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy who, you know, they, they, he owned the land where SFO is now. It was originally called Mills Field in right. honor of him. Ogden Mills. And Ogden Mills. And he is an interesting character who basically owned that horse, Seabiscuit. Right. So he himself was a horse breeder, like a lot of rich people. And, yeah. you know, I mentioned in the book, like, Belen himself, the CEO guy, loves Kentucky Derby. Right. Um, and and this is a common thing like with a lot of rich people just like right yeah rich people hobby but it didn't used to be you know it yeah. used to be everyone had to have folks. a horse just the way you had a car <laughs> yeah, you know totally. like um but it was also like car plus like farming you know there was no combines or tractors then yeah um you had to have horses um and just like how much technology has changed in one man's lifetime yeah where 
you know, he here he is, depending on horses, going to fight in World War One. He eventually died in 1955, where mm. like auto industry is pretty well developed by 1950. Yeah. Um, so that guy really lived through, you know, probably the largest technological change mm. in in history. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been fascinated with genealogy, and so I wanted to put in like some of my actual interest in, in genealogy as well. Yeah, and I love this um, this point where you like when you meet Belin, the CEO, you're like, "Wow, that's so interesting." I had like a great grandfather <laughs> named Belin. Like I've never heard anyone else with this name, and the guy just like does not give a shit. It's like, "Oh, shit, cool," and then he just starts talking about the next thing. Like your narrator's like curiosity for the world, and like human interaction and connectivity storytelling storytelling (laughs) like the way that facts are like curiously linked and lead into the next ones this guy's just like just such a prick like he doesn't couldn't care less he only cares about like the numbers right right and if you work in you know the corporate world long enough you will meet people like Mm -hmm. this who Mm -hmm. Literally, all that they're there to talk about is work. Right. And if you even try to engage them, even if they have your same name or, <laughs> you know, went to the same high school as you, you'd be like, wow, that's crazy. And they'd be like, yep. Anyway. Anyways, the, what's the bottom um, line? Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. So, I mean, with Beelan, too. So what I was going to say is he was adopted at age 21 um, by a guy named Reuben T. Booker. So my name, that's where Booker, name comes from. is not even... You know, he, he was not born a booker. Right, yeah. But the crazy thing, too, is I'm not really even blood related to him and that my mm-hmm. father is also adopted. Mm-hmm. And my father, his father's name was Prindle. So, like, mm-hmm. my name probably should have been Prindle. And to me, huh. this is also, like, a lesson in, like, in naming, right? And that in a way it doesn't matter. Like whatever your name is, it's sort of like it's coincidence. It's happenstance. Right. However, yeah. that yeah. it could have easily been something else. Yeah. And I could have easily been a Beelin or a Prindle yeah. or a Booker or some other name. And yeah. you go back far enough in your family tree and like, who are all these people? Doesn't do you, are you really related to them? <laughs> you know, like, I, yeah, I, it's like, I, I could, most people can't tell you the n- birth names of all, eight great grandparents oh i absolutely could not not even close yeah no and idea 16 people like yeah only going back a couple generations and you're just like i don't even know these people's names yeah and that's like the bare minimum the name just give me the name yeah like first name so oh, yeah i can name my grandparents so that, names beyond that maybe title, maybe one great great grandparent <laughs> so and it's you know this guy's is also in the book con- sort of condemned to the idea that this deck he's doing will be forgotten yeah. everything we do will be forgotten oh yeah no one's gonna remember it what's the line whatever the title is line right near the end you have like uh your grave will one day go unattended <laughs> yeah i got that from conan o'brien oh really um conan o'brien has a great story about eventually oh, all our graves go unattended. graves will be unattended yeah. uh that's a totally stolen line from conan o'brien and he has this story about shoot is it calvin coolidge I forget. This goes to some president's grave, mm-hmm. and he's just like, there it is, kind of on a hill. It's not even that remarkable of a grave. Yeah. No one else is around. No one here comes to pay visit. It's not like there's tons of pictures of this thing online. Yeah. And it's like he was president of the United States, most powerful person in the world. Right, yeah. And eventually, he's just another dude in a grave, yeah. and there's no one else coming to his grave either. Yeah. And that's pretty profound to me. I think no where he, yeah. um, 
shit, maybe I'm mixing up these anecdotes. He he has another anecdote. <sighs> you know, Conan O'Brien's like king of the anecdotes, right? Yeah. He has another anecdote of meeting um, Albert Brooks. Okay. And I'll, I'll probably butcher this as well. <laughs> and um, Albert, he's complaining to Albert Brooks about uh, about something with his show and. Like he wants to do this movie. He's got all these problems. And Albert Brooks at some point leans into him and is like, you know, none, none of this matters. Mm. Like who cares? It doesn't matter. Right. All of this will be forgotten. <laughs> like, no one will remember any of this. It doesn't matter. And I, I feel that way, you know, especially in the corporate world where you go work really hard on some project or some presentation. Yeah. And it's like, in the end, it's totally forgotten. Mm. Like, it's very rare that anyone makes something that is other people at your job will refer back to. Mm-hmm. It's always looking forward. It's like right, yeah. how shark always moves forward. Yeah, right? It's yeah. just what's next. What's next? Yeah. We look back at the past. Like people don't read that. They don't go back and read that stuff. Right. So like uh, the corporate world is not a historian. <laughs> no. And, and like and I said, historian. it has some dangerous, yeah. has some dangerous consequences with, right. you know, people who, like I say, are unfamiliar with, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of studies on robotics and artificial intelligence. And, you know, the, what, what should you do with a machine that maybe could learn something? Uh, right. And there's just a lot of forward progress without thinking back. Mm-hmm. And man, I think just the speed of change is going to increase so fast that there's not time to to look back until something breaks mm-hmm. yeah. you know we look back and we're like oh shit should have really gone back and read <laughs> done the reading you know that's right. a big lesson for if yeah. i were you dave that'd be the thing i would try to impress upon my children yeah. is like just do the reading mm-hmm. there's a section an entry in the book about uh i can't remember the name, person's per, person's name but they're predicting the singularity happening between like 20 35 and Werner 2055 yeah. or something like that. Is that yeah. sort of close? 2005 and 2030. It's on page 40. Oh, yeah. And then nice. a poll of other scientists said that AGI would be developed by 2040 or 2050. Mm, yeah. They just keep guessing down the yeah. road. And they're like, <laughs> we're on the right path. Maybe in like, I don't know, 20 years. The, then the next line is the casual promise of a future nightmare. It's like, oh, we'll maybe it'll have to be happening between this decade. <laughs> That's great. <I> love, <laughs> what that's a great line. <laughs> um Every line in my journals could now be used as a title for the deck. Um, so in terms of like how, how you wrote this book, it something you wrote over like a year, year and a half, I think you said at one point. Is that right? So I, yeah, I'd had these note cards, right. you know, when I first started out, I was really mimicking marks and style down to even writing little things on a note card. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what, when you get a stack of note cards, that's like, I don't know, two or three inches wide, mm-hmm. what do you do with them? And Markson says in his books that he puts them in the top of a shoebox lid. And so I started doing that. Yeah. And then I filled up a shoebox lid. And he says for his books, it's like two shoebox lids mm-hmm. of full of cards. And then he thinks he has a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I filled up one with like a lot of different facts. Yeah. And, you know, Markson died in 2010. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of facts that have happened since he's died. And... I wanted to try to capture some of those, like keep his spirit alive in a way by mm-hmm. you know, finding things that would have, you know, maybe interested him if he was me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, totally. But then, you know, that that was the easy part. The hard part, I think, was coming up with this, this framing device of yeah. the job and the deck. And, you know, I had 
like the same guy, like just AI on the brain because it keeps coming up as like, yeah, this is the next great thing, and people have been saying that forever. It's the next great thing, and yeah. I just got really annoyed by a lot of like hot takes. Like I don't want to go read a hot take about AI, yeah. um, but I, I'm forced to deal with it in in some way. Yeah. So the the real irony here, Dave, will be, it's possible at some point in the future at my job that I will actually be asked to make a deck about <laughs> something about AI. <laughs> yeah. So this book was just like an exercise in, in preparation. For that possible day. Dread. dread. <laughs> Exercise in dread, maybe. Um, like Markson, um, there's like in, specifically in Wittgenstein's Mistress, there's parts where the narrator says something and then like a page later they go, actually no. And they just negate what was just said. And it that's kind of a recurring thing that happens in that book. So you're like, you can never trust anything that narrator says. There's a funny part right near the beginning where you're talking about waiting for your Uber in the Embarcadero. And you're like, I have to get to the airport like right now. Jimmy phones you like, I can't talk. I got to go. I got to go right now. Um, and then two pages later, you're like, uh, I got to get morphs into the 101. <laughs> and soon we are stuck in the usual parking lot traffic. I don't mind. I have an hour or three to spare. I like to get to the airport early. <laughs> I don't yeah. like to entertain the idea of being late. Um, that reminded me kind of like of our our conversation in O'Hare where we sat there for like two or three hours and just talked about books and stuff. Um, right. I mean, this I podcast like, this, would not this exist checks, without this tracks from that. Like he likes to get to the airport really early, early <laughs> three hours before the flight. <laughs> I was there a lot early. And yeah. That's how, that's how this podcast exists is that you and I got there really early for that flight. Yeah. We had books and we had opportunity to sit around and talk about books. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, I've always loved that about the airport. Like, I yeah. think one reason why I like to get there early is like, there's nothing to do. Yeah. Like, for once is a line for once. You say, and I like, love that. It's like for me now to be in an airport alone with no kids and just be able to like wander and sit and read and like, it's like a dream, something. right? <laughs> it's, it's an exercise in pure joy for a lot of people. It's like tedium, you know, but like, right. This kind of tedium excites me <laughs> at this stage oh. of my life. <laughs> Obviously, I'm the same. You know, I, I absolutely love that whole thing, and I, I think it used to be a lot more common back when you know when people took trains, yeah, and you'd have to wait at the train station, and getting around was a lot harder. Um, you know, we're spoiled now. If you can be, you know, I can be in L.A. in two and a half hours mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, but even on the plane itself, you know, I, I pay attention to like how many people bring a print book, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and there's still a fair number of people that do not everyone, but it would be very rare to see like all three people in a row in a seat reading a print book. Right. Yeah. Um, it's usually like I'm the oddball that just has a print book. Um, but I love that cause I don't have a lot of other reading times sometimes. And yeah. when I'm on a plane, I can get a lot of reading done. Totally. You know? Yeah. It is not so bad. I like your thoughts on SFO. I haven't spent a lot of time in that airport, uh, but you have, or your character, your narrator has, I assume I've, you I've have. personally spent a lot of time <laughs> yeah. on it. And that there's a bargain bookstore in SFO that has Holy like shit, small, it's so print, great. small print. It's unbelievable. Wow. What's it called? Like, it's called Compass Books, mm. and they're actually on Twitter, and it is mm. a fantastic bookstore. And that, and there might even be more than one in the, in the city or even in the airport. Oh, yeah. But 
they have a bargain books section and it is like very well curated. Like awesome. I, I bought some books there that were like seven or $8 mm-hmm. and like they had really obscure, small press stuff that I like translations, Wild. anthologies. Yeah. And I was just like, fuck, am I the only one here? Like clearly not. Like there must other, other people in San Francisco coming here and buying like, Sure, I'll take Dalkey Archives yeah. and the best of European American fiction <laughs> right. in 1999. Like, I'll buy that. Yeah. And I was, like, so shocked by this because you just don't expect to see that kind of, like... Obscurity. Know, culture yeah. and obscurity in, in that environment. In also, where everything is... It's so overpriced. Like, you mm. know if you're buying a book at a bookstore in the airport, mm. you're just going to get screwed. Yeah. Like, there's no bargain to be had. Yeah, it's so totally. it's so remarkable to me. And yes, uh, there really is a restaurant there called Yankee Pier. I yeah. really do love it. Yeah. Always. And you got to get there. the popcorn shrimp. According it's to your so assistant. Good. Yeah. It's really. <laughs> Who you're not sure is an AI or not. <laughs> Actually, you know, <laughs> I, I really love. Uh, clam chowder. That's my go to. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, if you're in SFO, like I think you would have a special appreciation for it. So I sort of wanted to be the great novel of the Yankee Pier restaurant inside SFO. So as far as <laughs> I know, there is you, no like, other cards, like... current <laughs> current novel out there that's just about hanging out at Yankee Pier <laughs> in SFO airport. So the next time you go there, they're gonna have a, a Matt Booker Buell deck <laughs> quote like on their entry board or something. They would be like, "Who is this fucking weird guy?" You gotta again? try what the popcorn do? shrimp. <laughs> They would be like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> uh, no, but I am going there next month, which will be a weird experience of okay. being an SFO after having, you know, published this book. So Yeah, no kidding. Amanda. Amanda's your assistant. Maybe I should send her a C A P T C H A. Um, for people who listen to the show and like the writers that we like, they're going to find a lot to love throughout your book as well. Your, this book is peppered with quotes from writers that we like. There's at least four or five references or specific mentions of Wallace. Saunders gets mentioned. Pynchon's in there. Kyle Beachy. That was cool to right. see one of our past guests in your book. Where is that Kyle Beachy quote from? I think it's from his book. Is that from and, The Most uh, Fun Thing? Most Fun cool. Thing, yeah. Updike, Nabokov... Markson makes appearances, many, many other writers. It's a lot um, of baseball stuff. A lot in of there, baseball, you know? a lot of like famous actors, actresses. The thing about Johnny Cash burning down like hectares of forest. I, I never knew about that. True story. I Googled yeah. it a bunch. So this book does this cool meta thing where like it's about rabbit holes on the internet. And it's very possible that this book takes far less time to read then people who read it are going to spend doing rabbit holes of research that are based on what's in this book. So yeah, like Johnny Cash burned down like many hectares of forest in Northern California, struck lit on fire. He was sued like a million dollars plus by the state. I didn't know about this, but I'm reading it. And like, it's possible that I spent more time researching the things that you mentioned (laughs) in this book than it took to read this book, which is so cool. Like, that's a really amazing feat to to um, to just like have this book about rabbit holes, and it pushes people towards that. They'll find your own rabbit hole. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I've had a couple of people like tell me that they have gone and looked up stuff. Yeah, and I'll I'll say like all the trivia in this is true. Yeah, like there's there's no me like trying to trick you with some fake trivia. Right. (laughs) Um, but like one of our mutual friends, like one friend emailed me right away and, or texted me and was like, Mm -hmm. 
is that true that Steve Jobs really did j- date Jennifer Egan? Yeah. And I was like, yep, go yeah, look I looked, up. Yeah, I looked that up, too. And, I was like, yeah, oh, wow. And, uh, Did not know this. And then another friend texted me to say, is it true that Cal Ripken wrote 30 books? And I was like, do you know who Cal Ripken is, Dave, the baseball <laughs> like player? Like Cal Ripken Jr.? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like Cal Ripken Jr. wrote nearly 30 books, has published 30 books. Really? And it was like, uh, he told me he had to put the book down and go Google that like right away. Like, what are they primarily about? Are they related to yeah. baseball, many of them? Baseball, leadership. Or? He's got kids' books. It's just like you would think he could do two or three of those, right. but it's like 30, 30 books. Wow, that's nuts. It's been busy. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been interesting to see what, what interests different people. Yeah. Like I said, some people in the in the more academic world maybe not get as much out of the corporate mm. deck-making stuff that you have to do for work. but right. Um, you know, I, I hope that there's, if, if you know anything about me, that there's something in it that would, would resonate. Yeah. Um, totally. I mean, I have zero experience in the corporate world. Like I've only been in education for, since I was 25 It's my <clears throat> career profession. So like, I have no idea about what it's like to work in a, in a corporate office, but I mean, I watch enough TV and movies and read right. enough books that I have like a sense and, you know, friends that do so. Um, I don't think you're going to lose anybody on that stuff at all. I found it fascinating. Yeah, it's it's more about the, um, I don't know, the being inside one person's mind who does yeah. spend more time with books rather than PowerPoint. Right. You know? yeah. um, and speaking of PowerPoint, I'll tell you one more story about that, which is at a, a previous job of mine, I had come up with this idea to create a kind of product, a website where people could go to find, it was like an index to a bunch of documents. Mm-hmm. And in order for it to work, like you would click on an index name in the left pane of the screen and on the right pane, wherever that index entry appeared, it would appear from the actual PDF page. Mm-hmm. And it was a cool product that, you know, I came up with, I was proud of how it worked and everything. And I was like, well, now we got to name it. <laughs> and my first name for it was, I had a long list of names. And I was like, what would I really be proud of? Mm-hmm. And I came up with this name of Forethought. And I was like, well, that's a cool name, Forethought. It's kind of predicting what you're going to think, you know, yeah. before you think it. And then I started doing like a trademark search on that word for yeah. software. And that was the original name of PowerPoint. Right. And that's so in the book. It's in the book, yeah. right. And so the guy who created PowerPoint and originally called it Forethought. Yeah. And he's also the one who was the expert on the English concertina. Right. Just the little squeeze box. And, you know, I was telling you that right after that in the book, there's a quote from Tori Amos talking about her song concertina, which I absolutely love. It's yeah. one of my favorite songs. Um, and the first line of this song is in the book in a couple of places which is clouds, clouds descending. descending right yeah and it's just a great song uh and it's just so random that this guy who was a software developer like studied the history of this obscure musical instrument like it kind of fits with what i'm saying of like <laughs> yeah. i like the weird parts of you know silicon valley and the, the yeah. tech world where there's some weird shit going on there yeah. and you know, you will occasionally find a guy who's like, well, my real passion is the, you know, the history of the English concertina on which I did a dissertation. I just ended up in this job. Like, what the fuck? Let's talk about that. You know, yeah, I don't right. want to talk about PowerPoint. I want to talk about that. Yeah, no kidding. That's um, the real human interest stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Um, 
I love this part on page 42. You say, neural networks had advanced past that point in the late 90s. My counterpoint to him, not really. <laughs> and I wondered if that was a sly, I think you should leave reference, because there's several moments throughout I think you should leave where a character just goes, not really. Not really, no. Like Santa Claus says that to his, that. <laughs> to his boss in Crashmore. Um, Maybe I've just absorbed it so much that it's part of my personality. <laughs> Yeah, totally. You just no, chug a bottle of water and then answer someone's question with, not really. Not really. Don't come in other styles. I'll just be on my phone. <laughs> um, For hours and hours. No problem. I could just be on my phone. But now that thing about neural networks, I, I was actually thinking about the um, Richard Powers book, Galatea 2.2. Oh, yeah. I still have which, to read that, man. Um, came out in 1996. Favorites. And yeah, it's one of my favorite books and it is about this question of like training a neural network and it's like the Pygmalion story of like, how does it become human? Mm. So like Richard Powers was writing about this shit really intelligently yeah. like 27 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that thing of like, well, it's come a long ways. And it's like, not really. Like a lot of what they were doing back then is like very similar yeah. to what's being touted now. It's just like, is a lot of marketing terms have changed around mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the speed of change is, is sped up in some ways. But uh, chatbot, you know, th that stuff has existed for a long time. Right. Yeah. And that's how, basically how, you know, the, the, the Turing test works. Like, yeah, develop, right. is, is relies on that same, like, idea of a chatbot. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, that's going back, you know, 80 years. Yeah, totally. 70 years yeah. or something. So... That idea of like pe people think now, well, oh, this is the most technologically advanced time. We have it yeah. better now. It's like, right. not really. Not really. Um, is AI art maybe kind of a newer feature of AI technology that hasn't existed as much previously? Yeah, I would say that that's a newer yeah. application mm -hmm. and idea. And it is really scarily good, mm -hmm. in, especially in creating like fake human faces. Yeah. Um, and you know, wh what are the moral implications of doing that? Mm. Like, that's something that I think should be tightly, you know, constrained and watched yeah. because there are laws about me impersonating a police officer, mm -hmm. but what if I can make AI generate a picture of a police officer and send it up to your Facebook messenger? Like, mm -hmm. that's currently like, it's just unexplored territory, but yeah. it's not, I'm sure if I actually knew what I was talking about, I could find AI generated art going back 50 years. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I'm they're certainly all... like not well versed in this conversation at all, but I'm becoming, you know, part of more water cooler moments around it at work and right. stuff. Yeah. Right. Again, it's probably just marketed differently now. But yeah. <laughs> I do see it even with like podcast editing has gotten incredibly smart where AI can, you know, do a lot more, but, really what they're calling AI is just like cool applications. Like would you call Microsoft word? It's a tool. It's not like an AI thing, even though it can underline misspelled words. Mm. Well, that's not AI. Right. It's a tool. that's telling you that. But right. You have a, a lot of in the, in the book. That's like, um, despite the rise of technology in 2021st century, like it has helped with writing very little other than like the advancement past like the typewriter and like the computer keyboard. And I find that to be a fascinating moment. Like, yeah, that's, I mean, like yeah. the human ability to write something sublime and beautiful and poetic is like not really aided by technology. 
Yeah, Powers might actually disagree with that. And that yeah, his okay. writing style, I don't know if you've seen his writing method for a while, was like he would, this is crazy, I don't know where I read this, but he would like lay in bed mm -hmm. with a computer on the bed or maybe even a laptop on his stomach and it would the screen would be projected onto the ceiling okay and he would use like sp text to speech dictation yeah so he would just like not even be typing and just like literally dictating yeah. what he wants the next like sentence to say yeah. and it would like appear on the ceiling and like <laughs> that kind of shit is crazy huh. like, if you're doing that That's kind of cool. stuff yeah but for the most part it does that make it any it's easier for some people especially if they're disabled maybe yeah yeah that's true but when it comes down to it i mean this is why i love you know, the pencil as technology yeah. is is brilliant and it's actually i don't want to go off on a tangent but the pencil itself is like relatively new technology um famously like maybe even helped create different grades of graphite by uh thoreau um mm. so john thoreau his father was a um pencil maker mm -hmm. in Massachusetts in like the early 1800s. But um, you, you go back, we have writing going back thousands of years, but that was not like with what we consider a pencil now. Like yeah. ink was easier to develop. Quill pens were easier to develop. Than lead and graphite. Uh, hmm. Graphite was just, charcoal was around obviously like with the, you know, Neanderthals and cavemen and stuff. Yeah. But the pencil itself is a great technology. We say that sometimes with books like, the book itself is a great piece of technology. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also Carl like... Carl Sagan a, has a, a sort of... I saw a clip of this online that Evan Stevens Hall posted. Carl Sagan just like talking about the wonderful technology of books. It is. <laughs> yeah. It is. And it's that's why it's not obsolete. You know? Yeah. Um, but there, there's also like kind of a tweet that's going around or a sentiment that's going around of like is this really the future that we want where AI is given the jobs of making art and writing poetry and mm. creating songs when it's like, shouldn't that be the domain of humans? Yeah. Like, is it going to end up where we yeah. have somehow engineered it where it's like, Oh, it's a lot easier for the computer to just go create art. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what's left for us to do? Yeah. That's um, a scary tipping point. I think. Um, and you know, one of my inspirations in, in writing this book was um, JG Ballard book mm. called Supercon. And Supercon is kind of set in the near future where uh, it's in a private, like, gated community, wealthy community in the south of France. And there's some, like, meditation in there on the idea of work and non-work and anti-work versus leisure. Mm. And at one point, you know, he's questioning, like, is luxury itself ethical? Is... Um, you know, how, how can you have any morals and also live a really like luxurious life, but also contemplating like what would be the future of humanity if it were not, if there was no work to be done. Like mm -hmm. if we had gotten rid of like everyone who has a, a white collar job now, it's like we got robots to do it. So yeah. what do you do? Yeah. And like your deeds are taken care of. And like in his book or he, in his character's speculation, it's like there's a lot of sex there's a lot of Drug sports, sports, sports. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and it's so great because it's just like auto racing and tennis and golf and like, uh, uh -huh. but the idea really being like, you're free to pursue what really interests you yeah. if you're freed from work. Right. And like, 
for a lot of people that would be art and music and pottery and mm-hmm. writing and researching and mm-hmm. inventing new things if yep. it were not for the constraints of having to go make a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's um, it reminds me of like um, Ray Bradbury's the Velt, that short story. Do you know this one where there's what like is it called the Velt and it's about a futuristic home that this family has where like the house itself does the cooking, the cleaning, washing, all of the like Jetson robot style stuff. And then they have this kind of this room for the kids. It's like the rumpus room, but it's got like, uh, like televisual walls basically. And so it can simulate like the African, uh, Sahara or whatever. And that's what it does. And then there's like this lion and there's like smells and there's all kinds of like sensory stuff that this room can do. And then in the end, like the father gets eaten by the lion from the, from the walls, you know, (laughs) but like there is like they the characters in this, in the, in that story are like depressed because they have no meaningful work to do. You know, even like, I, I don't know how like meaningful like cooking and cleaning are on like a human existential scale, but like there's maybe something to be said for like making something yourself and enjoying it. And I don't know. Well, I think even in Marx and he has this line, it's from like, fucking einstein or something that's like this cooking and cleaning shit is endless mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like from one of his letters or something yeah yeah maybe it's einstein or someone I mean, really brilliant right it's life, just like or something about like his hobbies or just cooking and cleaning what was that, that that's was in your harbin killerbrew uh yeah that was in my book where yeah. his hobbies is just like doing the dishes i don't I know like doing the dishes <laughs> that's a great line <laughs> but you know let, let me make it clear if we can invent more robots that can do all of the cooking and cleaning and dishes. I'm all for that. I would sign more, up for that. Sure. More scientists need to figure out, like, go work on laundry. Yeah. Uh, like, it's like <laughs> Seinfeld has this bit about, like, the scientist who came up with the seedless watermelon. He's uh-huh. like, really? That's where you put all of your scientific energy <laughs> is to coming up with the seedless watermelon? It's like, you could have gone and worked on, like, cancer or diabetes. It's like, right. The seedless watermelon. Yeah, because that's just, uh, just such a massive human problem. Like, there has been almost no technology advances in laundry in my lifetime. Like, right. what the hell? Yeah. Or like, dishwashing. hand washing. Yeah. I still have so much hand washing to do, even though we have a mm-hmm. dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we cook Same. a lot. I like right. cooking, and I'm like, the cooking and the cleaning, all of that stuff. Yeah. Please apply your scientific <laughs> genius. <laughs> Put some robots jet, and AI. The future the Jetsons promised us future well, and what I, you know i say in the book too what i love about the jetsons robots is that like there's no confusing them for a human that's like, right yeah all they can do is cook and clean yes. and they clearly They're look not like androids. robots yeah. now they look like robots and they only do robot stuff which is cooking and cleaning right. and like we had the the thing that goes on the floor the i robot uh, yeah, yeah. Vacu- vacuum yeah. thing, you know, and mm-hmm. it was the dumbest robot in the world and really <laughs> not a great vacuum. And I absolutely hated that thing. And I, r- it broke Roomba, down so much. Roomba, yeah. yeah. And it broke down all the time. And it was so unreliable. And I got rid of it. And I was yeah. like, this is it's the right idea, yeah. you know, like if they could do that with mowing the yard and stuff. But oh, yes. It's please. just, it's just so bad right now. Like we're, Maybe our grandchildren will live to see some like house cleaning robots. <laughs> we can only hope if the climate crisis doesn't consume the consume their world before that happens. Well, Matt, it has been wonderful to like sit down with you and talk about something that you made. It's a very very cool one off episode for us. Um, 
where is the best place that people can find this book to to buy it and to read it i really don't care uh you can buy it on there's a lot of hits yeah you can buy it on barnes and noble you can buy it on bookshop.org you can order it from your local bookstore i seriously doubt any of them are stocking it but they can order it can you buy it directly Um, from sideshow media group i prefer if you didn't it's just a pain in the butt i think (laughs) for you specifically because you have to mail it no 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 it's i i don't do the fulfillment on that that's not me but uh I would prefer, I think, if just people did what's easiest for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of people have asked me, like, oh, I, I want to make sure you get paid as an artist. And I believe in supporting. And it's a nice idea, but, like, I'm literally, this is a few bucks, and I'm, like, literally not making money off of this. So it's not. Right. You could support me just by reading it. And yeah. uh, if you buy it from Amazon, I promise I won't tell anyone. <laughs> if you buy it from bookshop.org. I don't care where you buy it, but um, <laughs> I, it's nice if people do want to buy it. Um, I am going to be reading from it at the David Foster Wallace conference. We're having this uh, this next week here, All right? Yeah, this next week. So that'll be the first like kind of reading that I've ever done from it. And again, hey, I cool. never thought I would be doing that. Whenever I wrote the book, I was like, Shh, it's not really meant to be like read from. You notice <laughs> I didn't read an excerpt on this podcast. Do you want to? Uh, no, no. It's not really like an excerptable type. <laughs> okay. It's just a lot of like random stuff. Yeah. Uh, if people want to read it, they will. But thanks for thanks for promoting it. I really appreciate you being supportive of it, Dave, because again, I, really I had no idea it. if 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 it would resonate because it is so much me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the danger of that is if someone rejects it, it's like you're rejecting me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true um but someone yeah. who doesn't know you won't necessarily know that it's you in the way that like a good friend of yours it's true would, you know? and, and plenty of people who don't know me have read the book and liked it so i, I am encouraged yeah. by that yeah um but you know the lesson that i would give to anyone else is like write for yourself you know do yeah. what the book that you want to see into the world that yeah. you would want to buy that you would want to read more about do that and you know, we can't all be David Marks and we can't all be David Foster Wallace. So you have to be yourself. And that, that's been a very long journey for me to get to that point in terms of mm-hmm. of writing something that's even vaguely like fictional. Right. Yeah. There's a, a line in this book where you say someone right now is writing the perfect book for you. Something to that effect. I'm trying to find it right now. I, I highlighted it. Uh, do you know the line exactly? No. <laughs> Anyways, as I was reading that, and in hindsight, having read it twice, I feel like this this book that you wrote, Matt, is like the, that perfect book for me. Like it just oh, wow. nailed a lot of stuff right, that I love. It says, there is a book out there being written today that is just for you. I just found it as you started <laughs> reading it on page 36. Yeah, and I thought this feels like a book that's just for me. And I have a feeling that a lot of our uh, listeners will feel the same way about the Beela deck. Well, so thanks for your really time, flattering. Matt. Um, Thank you. In writing this and for putting it out into the world and talking about it today. You also did a great interview with, uh, I was trying to find it. I was trying to Google it today. I saw it on Instagram like a week ago, maybe. Jay Ennis Murray. Jay Ennis Murray. Okay. We'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, I'll link to some other reviews of the book as well and places where people can buy it. So feel free to check the show notes and click some of those links if you want to check out uh, more on the Beelin deck. Uh, we want to thank a new patron this month. We've got a new um, supporter. We want to thank Tim Abondello so much for 
your financial support of the show. It means so much to us. Thank you, Tim. Um, any other final thoughts, Matt, or announcements? Um, two things I would say. If you do want to read an excerpt from the book, it's on uh, my website, mattbooker.com. Um, and we, you know, we, we've been a little slow in putting out episodes this year, Dave, but we do That's have true. a bunch in that we're planning to do. So yeah. stick with us and, you know, we, we're going to do a bunch more episodes at some point. So stick with us. We're working on it. Yeah. Life has been kind of curiously crazy this year for us. And I've like, you know, like trying to come to grips with learning to be okay with like not putting too much pressure on myself about the release schedule of this show, you know, cause it does take a lot of like planning and forethought and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, this isn't our job. Like we're not getting paid money by like an employer to do this. So it's like, I would love to be releasing something like, you know, once every month or two, this year has been a bit slower. So thank you everyone for your patience. We appreciate it. Um, but yeah, more to come. And uh, stick around for a short bonus episode in which Matt and I talk about our year in reading so far. Catch me now as I say. Into darkness, I thought to be extinct. And the next line is the causal promise of a future nightmare. Casual that. promise. Casual promise. Sorry. 